Welcome to the Prayer Mentor Podcast, where we are empowering Christian leaders to pray for the harvest. We pray your prayer life will be deepened by this podcast. This afternoon, we're continuing our series on persistent prayer. And specifically today, we're looking at the key to answered prayer. Many years ago, I was with a friend praying on Saturday morning. Uh, It was my practice every Saturday morning to pray for the worship services on Sunday morning. And there are usually um, three to five people who would pray with us. And this one morning was just me and my friend. And to be honest with you, um, I was discouraged. I believed in the power of prayer. I'd seen it. Um, I believed that when we prayed, we watched people come to know Christ on Sunday mornings. We watched people's lives be transformed. And if I had my way, I would make it a requirement that every leader in our church, every pastor, would come and be a part of that prayer time because of the power of prayer that I knew um, would bring about and usher the kingdom of heaven into this church and into the community. And my dear friend, he put his arm on my shoulder and he looked at me and he says, Clyde, you cannot program prayer. And you know what? He was absolutely right. Through the years, I have learned that I can't program prayer. What I've learned is that there's two things that motivate people to pray. One is crisis, the other is vision. It is when we recognize that we are needy, that we're poor in spirit, that we begin to pray and uh, we receive all the resources of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we want to talk about in our time together today. In Luke chapter 11, um, Jesus is teaching on prayer. And in verse 1, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I've heard many sermons on this passage in Luke 11, and oftentimes uh, preachers will say, This was a noble request. And in fact, this is the only time in all the Gospels where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something. And the one thing was prayer. But I want to suggest to you it was not so noble because he said, as John taught his disciples. You see, when we compare someone with someone else, what we're saying is that someone else else does a better job. And if you're a parent of a teenager, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My daughter Megan, when she was a teenager, wanted a phone. And she would say to me, Dad, why can't I have a phone? All my friends' parents let them have a phone. Well, when you're comparing, um, when she was comparing me to her friends' parents, What she was saying was, Dad, you're holding out on me and you're not as good of a father as all my friends' um, fathers are. So here are the disciples, and I want to suggest to you, I think he was whining. Lord, teach us the prayer as John taught his disciples to pray. He was angry. He was frustrated. Jesus had just been been praying, and they they watch. Jesus prays, and things happen. But they pray, and things don't happen. And so it's interesting to take note that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. 
What Jesus actually does in his conversation with them is he reviews all the things he taught them to do in terms of prayer. In verses 2 through 4, he reviews the Lord's Prayer. In verses 9 through 10, he reviews the teaching of persistent asking, persistent seeking, persistent knocking. And in verse 11 through verse 13, he reviews and, and talks about the goodness of the Father. He gives good gifts to his children when they ask. There's one new parable that Jesus inserts in his conversation and his response to them when they say, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And that was the parable of the persistent neighbor. It says in verse 5, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Jesus gives this analogy. Um, there's a man in his home and a friend comes from a journey and he's weary and he needs some food and nutrition. And actually in many cultures in the Middle East and throughout Asia, it is a shame to not give food to people when they enter into your home. And so here's this man, uh, a friend has come from a journey, he's weary, he needs nourishment, he goes into his kitchen, he opens the cupboards, and they're bare. He has nothing to give to his friend. So what does he do? He goes to his neighbor and he knocks on the door and his neighbor says, what are you doing? Don't bother me. I've shut the door. I've locked it. My children are in bed to me, with me. You can come tomorrow. And he says to his friend, I need three loaves. I've had this friend who's come from a journey and I need some food to give to him. And my cupboards are bare and I don't have any resources to feed him. Give me three loaves of bread. And the man replies and he says, no, no, no. The door's locked. We're in bed. Talk to me tomorrow. But because the man persists, my cupboards are bare. I have nothing to give to my friend. Please give me three loaves so I can feed my friend and he can be nourished and refreshed. It, Jesus says, He's not going to give them a thing because they're friends. But because of his persistence, because he recognizes his cupboards are bare, his desperation, he persists and he will give him the three loaves. Now the point of this parable that Jesus is teaching is not that we wear God out. The point of the parable is that we don't realize our cupboards are bare. We don't see just how desperate we are. If we did, we would pray. And that's what he's saying to his, his disciples. Men, if you recognize how needy you are, 
If you recognized your poverty of spirit, you would pray and God would give you the kingdom. The truth is, when we recognize that our cupboards are bare, our neediness, our poverty, we are now candidates for the kingdom of heaven and all of God's goodness and resources to be poured out to us as we pray. And so, the key to answer prayer here is to recognize that our cupboards are bare. He's saying to his disciples, when you see how desperate your situation is, then you will pray and then you will see answers to prayer because you're desperate. Again, the promise of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I travel throughout the world, I oftentimes have people come up to me and say, Clyde, will you be my prayer partner? And immediately what comes to my mind is, oh no, I've got to pray for them for the rest of my life. Do you ever feel that way? Well, I do. And what I do is I respond to them and I say, I will pray for you as the Spirit brings you to mind. You see, I have about 50 people I pray for regularly. My family, um, my team as we minister to international students, several international students that we pray for, men and women that I mentor, pastors, Christian leaders, missionaries, church planters. Um, I have a boatload of people to pray for and they have been placed in my hands and that's my assignment to pray. If I prayed for everyone who came and asked me to be their prayer partner, there would not be enough hours in the day. And so I just say to them, I'll pray as the Lord brings you to mind. And I will pray for you right now. So I put my hand on them and I listen to the Spirit and I pray for them. What I've learned through the years is that there is this these periods of time throughout scripture where people prayed. There's a 24-hour fast. Um, Samuel and the army of Israel are filled with fear because of the Philistines. And so Samuel calls them to fast for 24 hours. And after the 24-hour fast, they go and they confront the Philistines and they rout them. And God has heard their prayer. Esther uh, is confronted with a reality that the king, um, Artaxerxes, has made a decree that on a certain day, um, the people of his kingdom can destroy the Hebrews and the Hebrews cannot take up weapons and defend themselves. This was a part of an evil scheme by one of the king's key leaders named Haman. And so Mordecai says, don't think you'll escape this, Esther. If they attack the Jews throughout the kingdom, they will attack you. You're, you. It will be made known that you are a Jew and your life will be taken as well. And so Esther responds and says to her uncle, call the Jews of Susa to pray, well, to fast for three days, and I and my maid, we will fast for three days. After the three-day fast, Esther approaches the king. Now, the reason she wanted them to fast is because 
when you approach the king uninvited, the king has a choice to extend his sepulcher to you, and you're welcome. If he doesn't, you're put to death. And uh, the queen just knew very well that if she went and he was not pleased with her, she could be put to death. So they fast for three days, and she approaches the king, and he extends his sepulcher to her, and he offers her um, a portion of the kingdom. And she says, come to my quarters and let me prepare a meal for you. And in that meal, um, this lieutenant of the, the king is there, Haman. And she exposes the evil scheme. And the king determines at that time uh, that he is going to um, kill Haman for his scheme and his treachery. And he makes a new decree that the Jews throughout the kingdom can take up weapons and they can defend themselves. And so the Hebrew people who are scattered throughout the kingdom are now spared. There's a seven-day period, and we've talked about this. We call it a Jericho prayer for it. Um, Joshua and the army of Israel march around the city of Jericho for seven days in silence. Um, once a day for six days, the seventh day, seven times, and then at the end of seven times, the silence is broken with a trumpet and a shout, and the walls come tumbling down, and the army then goes into the city and destroys every living thing. We see a 10-day period when Jesus, right before he ascends to heaven, he says to his apostles, wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And for 10 days, they're in one accord and they're praying together in the upper room. And then Pentecost comes and the Spirit of God is poured out on them and the church is birthed into being. There's a 21-day period. Daniel receives a vision and he doesn't understand it. And so Daniel takes on a partial fast. He's only eating vegetables and fruit for um, a period of 21 days. And at the end of 21 days, the angel Gabriel comes to him and um, he explains to him, gives an interpretation of the vision, the dream um, that Daniel had had. Then there's a 40-day period. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And in that period, um, Jesus uh, binds a strong man and he is now filled with the Spirit and is empowered and he begins his public ministry. We don't have to pray every day for the rest of our lives. You ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what is the work of prayer I need to do? I'm desperate. My cupboards are bare. I need you um, the Father to respond to this crisis or this vision that I have. I need God's intervention. Holy Spirit, what is the work of prayer I need to do? And so we do a prayer effort. It might be three days, seven days, one day, 10 days, 21 days, 40 days. And we look to God in our desperation. We persistently ask, seek, and knock. And because God's good, He responds to our prayers. Because He's good. Um, my wife entered into a 24-hour fast for my daughter, Megan, 
when she was 11 years old. Now in Texas, football is king, American football, and children actually begin playing in organized sports leagues when they're eight years old in Texas. And by the time they're 10, they're wearing full pads and playing tackle football. And every, every football team has a core of um, cheerleaders. And Megan was a cheerleader from the time she was eight years old all the way through to 11 years old. And when she was 11, one of the girls who was on her cheerleading team decided that every girl on the team needed to have a boyfriend who was on the football team. And so she began matching them up. And uh, Megan talked to her mother about it and Mary Lynn said, you know, honey, you just tell them that your mom and dad won't let you do that. And Megan was glad to do that because she didn't want to hang out with a boy. I mean, she was 11 years old. And this boy felt snubbed by Megan. And in that rejection, she began to pick on him. And as it turned out in the classroom, she sat right, he sat right behind her and he would pull um, her pigtails, he would kind of poke her in the ear, and he would pick on her. And one day, Megan came home, she had had enough, and she was in tears and said, Mom, that boy is always picking on me. Well, Mary Lynn was fit to be tied, and she said, Megan, I will talk to the teachers about it. Now, this was on a Monday afternoon after school, and Mary Lynn was so upset that she called one of her closest friends, Laura, to come to a teacher's meeting um, so that if Mary Lynn gets out of hand, um, she wouldn't blow her testimony. Laura could touch her on the knee under the table and say, calm down, calm down. Well, Mary Lynn fasted from dinner on uh, Monday night um, through all of Monday night and all of Tuesday till dinner Tuesday night. She missed breakfast, she missed lunch, she had no snacks, she just drank water, and she poured her heart out to God to intervene on behalf of her daughter. She was desperate, her cupboards were bare. So Wednesday came, Mary Lynn met with the teachers and I say teachers because in this school when there was a parent conference a parent wanting to meet with a teacher, all the teachers of that grade met with the parent. And so Mary Lynn sits down and her leg is just moving. She's anxious and nervous and she's fit to be tied and going to let those teachers have it. And all of a sudden, the lead teacher stands up and says, Mrs. Hudson, we know why you're here. Um, Megan's teacher intercepted a note of encouragement from Megan's best friend and read it and we had no idea this was going on with the cheerleaders and the football players and I want you to know that this morning each of us has talked to the football players we have talked to the teach or to the cheerleaders and we told them this cannot go on and we forbade it and this is not going to happen any longer well Mary Lynn was dumbfounded she never even opened her mouth and God intervened and had taken care of the problem before she ever met with the teachers. That's the power of a 24-hour fast. And why did it happen? Because Mary Lynn was desperate. 
She knew her cupboards were bare and she needed God to intervene. She was poor in spirit and she watched God open heaven's door and intervene on behalf of our daughter, Megan. We had some dear friends who uh, approached me after a worship service. I was standing up front um, in a time of prayer ministry for people. They approached me and they said, something is happening with our daughter. We don't know what it is, but it's dark and we need to pray. And so I suggested, as I did in those days, what are you doing tomorrow morning? Let's do a Jericho prayer effort. Now this couple, they were leaders within the church. We had participated in many prayer efforts together. And he worked, um, <clears throat> uh, well, out of, out of the city at times. He would travel to other cities for his work. And he couldn't do a Jericho prayer effort, but he was aware of a wilderness prayer effort. And so he suggested, um, Clyde, could we meet on Wednesdays? M me and my wife, we will fast on Wednesdays. Would you join us? We'll come to your home and we'll pray together. And so Mary Lynn and I fasted together with them. Every Wednesday morning, we met together and we prayed for her daughter. And after six weeks of praying, they came in and they were discouraged. What they found out was that their daughter was a pole dancer. Um, they were horrified. Um, he was an elder in the church. She had gone to the Christian school that uh, operated in our church since the time she was in kindergarten. And they could not believe that their daughter was struggling and doing this dark thing. And we couldn't leave them there, so we did a whole nother Jericho prayer effort. Every Wednesday, we fasted. Um, we prayed together for an hour because we were desperate. Something was wrong with their daughter. Our cupboards were empty and we needed God's intervention. Well, after finishing the second six weeks, a total of 12 weeks of fasting and prayer, we had a sense of peace and we, we ended it up. Several years later, we get an invitation in the mail for this young woman's uh, wedding. And Mary Lynn and I look at, us, look at each other and we thought, well, this will be interesting. And we go to the wedding ceremony and to our amazement, um, it's a chaplain who's marrying them and she's marrying a man who I believe was a, a major in the Air Force. And he talked about their vibrant faith in Christ and we were just delighted to hear that. And if you looked at the bride, this woman we had prayed for, for 12 weeks, um, many years prior, the word to describe her was joy. From ear to ear, she had this big smile. The wedding was complete. We went to the reception. We greeted her. And again, the word to describe her was joy. We had a wonderful time at the reception. And when it was time to leave, we approached um, her mother and father, the couple we prayed with, and we took their hands and shook them, and they put their arms around us and drawed us in and gave us big hugs, and as they let us go, they said, we are here because of the work of prayer you did with us. God had intervened, and we did a 40-day prayer effort, and he showed his goodness to this 
mother and father in the life of their adult child. When we recognize that our cupboards are bare, when we are desperate, when we recognize that we are needy and impoverished, the promise that is there is that we will receive the kingdom, that God will answer our prayers. Then Jesus adds one more new truth, and that is found in verse 12. He says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see, when we seek God's face, He gives us the Spirit of God. And it is the Spirit of God who leads us in prayer. It is the Spirit of God who gives us wisdom to know who God is, revelation to have encounters with God, Ephesians chapter 1. It's the Spirit of God who strengthens us with power so that we can know the presence of God and gives us power so that we can know the full extent of the love of God, even though it's beyond comprehension. It's the Spirit of God who gives us wisdom to know what to pray and understanding to know how to pray as we pray. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it is the Spirit of God who is the agent of the kingdom of heaven. And the Father promises that he will give us the Spirit of God. He will give us the very best gift that we could possibly need in our time of desperation. Many years ago, my daughter Megan was a student at the University of North Texas. And it was her birthday, and she needed a bicycle to um, ride to campus, ride around on campus. And so Mary Lynn and I went to Walmart. We found the kind of bike she wanted. It was a Schwinn Cruiser. Um, but it was, uh, it was really a hunk of junk, and it, it cost $100. Now, we had a budget for her birthday for $100. But I just knew that was not a gift um, or a bike that would meet her needs. And so um, I went to a bicycle shop, Bicycles Incorporated, and I found a bike that was perfect. Um, it was a lime green. It was really loud. And Mer Megan, I knew, would love that bike. It had a basket on the handlebars. And there was just, it was just an incredible bike and had everything that she would possibly want as a college student in that bike. The problem was it cost $340 and we didn't budget for that. But I had been saving $20 every paycheck for the previous nine months for an annual deer hunt that I go on. It, it pays for um, my hunting license. It pays for a trip to the range to sight in my weapon and, and any supplies that I might need for the hunt, as well as giving a little bit of money to the driver, um, the man who would take me on the hunt. But I made a choice to take $240 of that money, money that I had set aside for something very special to me, um, so that I could buy Mer Megan the best bicycle I could possibly buy her. 
You, you cannot imagine the joy and delight on her face when she saw this Schwinn cruiser that was lying and that had a basket on the handlebars and white walls on the wheels. It was just an incredible experience for me as a father to give such, well, to give her a gift that she took such delight in. And you know, I think that's how our Heavenly Father is. He delights in giving good gifts to His children. And even He delights in giving the best gift to His children. And the best gift the Father can give to you and to me is that of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of God who guides us in prayer. It's the Spirit of God who gives us strength um, and endurance to persist in prayer. When one of the disciples in his frustration whined to Jesus and said, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, Jesus responded and said, you need to recognize that the secret to answered prayer is that of desperation. Your cupboards are bare. And because of that desperation, you will persist in prayer doggedly. You are going after God and heaven's resources. And the promise is those who know their poverty and acknowledge it to God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he gives us the agent of the kingdom, the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless you with the ministry of the Holy Spirit when you recognize that moment of your desperation and you seek God for the work of prayer you need to do in persistent prayer. May you see the goodness of the Father to intervene in your situation. The Lord bless you.